Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I want to go ahead and turn your Bibles. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, right towards the end of the chapter, verse 14 is where we're going to actually pick it up. So 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. Now, in uh, 1 Timothy, if you were here last week, you caught it. If not, it's on the internet. But uh, last week, Paul had just finished instructing Timothy regarding the church at Ephesus. Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus. It seems like it might have been a temporary situation. Paul just wanted Timothy kind of to, to kind of lead the church there, the, the, the elders and everything there, while uh, Paul was continuing on his missionary journeys. And so he wrote this letter to Timothy, and in chapter 3 he was instructing Timothy how men and women should behave in the church. What, what should church life look like? He also went into the qualifications of bishops, which we talked about last week, really means overseers. Uh, And then also the qualification of deacons, and that's a fancy name basically for table waiters or servants, those that just minister to the body of Christ. And so what are the qualifications that you look for for those kind of uh, people to serve in the the body of Christ? And so Timothy is getting that instruction from from Paul in the first part of chapter 3. And then here we pick it up here in verse 14, and Paul finishes his chapter. He says, These things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write that so you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So he says, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now, he is writing to Timothy, but I don't believe he's not necessarily just speaking of Timothy. I think he's speaking about the entire church there at Ephesus, including Timothy. In fact, it's really easy to go through chapter 3 and read the qualifications of elders and, or pastors and deacons and, and kind of go, well, you know what? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a deacon. It doesn't apply to me. Well, the fact is, as we talked about last week, it applies to all of us. These are characteristics that all of us need to have in our lives. And so it does apply to us. And so I think what, what Paul is saying here, it's not necessarily just Timothy, but the entire church, but it also includes Timothy as well. He says, so that you may know how to how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Now when I was growing up, I went to church growing up, and one of the things that I always heard is you don't run in church. That's God's house. You don't run in God's house. I don't know how many of you have heard that or maybe you've said that to your own children. Um, But that's not what Paul's talking about, the building, the house of God, the church building. He's talking about the church, and he says the church of the living God. And that word church there is the Greek word ekklesia. We'll probably get ecclesiastical or... or, uh, uh, other words like that. I don't, I don't know too many words like that, but ecclesiastical. But anyways, um, ecclesia, and, or ecclesia, excuse me. And it really, it literally means a calling out. And so for you and I, we're the church. We're the ecclesia. We are those who have been called out. What have we been called out to? Well, we've literally been called out of our homes and to a public place to worship together, a gathering, an assembly of believers. 
This morning you left your house. I was driving to church this morning, and I'm looking at all these people taking casual walks, and I go, well, maybe they don't go to church or something, but I'm going to church. I have to. I'm the pastor. But, <laughs> um, but anyways, but that's you know a calling out. We've been called out of our homes to come together to a public place to worship together, a, a gathering of believers. But that's not only what that means. It also means you and I, we've been called out of the world and its system and we've been called to the kingdom of God. And we have his rule and his authority in our lives. So we're, we're, we're the called out ones. This is another, another way to look at the church. We're the called out ones. And uh, notice he says the church of the living God. Now I'm sure each and every one of us here today believe that God is alive. And uh, God is living. In case you didn't know that, God, God is living. Uh, but if God is living... So is his house, because we're talking about his household. So is his church, you and I. In fact, Peter writes that. In 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're living stones comprising the body of Christ, comprising the house of God. And when I thought about that, I thought, living stones. What is a, what is a, I don't know what a living stone looks like, and, you know, a stone itself is a stone, but all I can think of is it's, it's vibrant. It's, it's, it's dynamic. It's, uh, it's growing. It's changing. Now, I don't know if stones do, but you and I as believers, that should describe our life as believers, right? We need to ask ourselves, is my faith growing Am I changing? Am I the same person I was six months ago that I am today? Have I, have I grown in the Lord? Have I matured in my faith? We need to ask ourselves that. Maybe the answer might be, you know what, I, I'm looking back at myself and I feel like I'm stuck in a certain mode. I'm, I'm not changing. Well, I'll be honest with you. You are changing, but it's for the negative because nobody stays static. We're changing one way or the other. You're either progressing towards the Lord or you're drifting away from Him. There's no middle ground there. So we need to ask ourselves that. So we are the church of the living God. And then Paul goes on to describe the church. He says the pillar and ground of the truth. Now what he's not saying is that the church is the foundation for truth. Because we're not the source of truth. The truth is God's word. The truth is God. I read in one commentary, it says that pillars in the ancient world were where uh, uh, officials would post public edicts. You know, they would, they would post an official document, something that everybody needed to read, and they'd post it on a pillar so it was exposed to all to see. And that word ground there in verse 15 means prop or support. And so you and I as believers... We, we, God has placed his life on us, his word in us. And, and you and I, we're like those pillars. We're, we're there to, we're exposed to everybody to see, to read our lives. We're to support, defend, and publish the truth of God by our lives. Not just what we say, but, but how we live. You know, you and I as believers, uh, you know, it's funny. We, we went to a uh, neighborhood gathering last night at our new neighborhood and and uh 
uh, it was a happy hour with food later on. So, you know, when I hear happy hour, I'm thinking, okay, I know what that's all about. So anyways, we went, and uh, people were really nice. We sit, we were in one of the neighbor's garages just visiting and, and getting to know different people, and, and slowly more and more neighbors started coming. And, and uh, anyways, we were talking to one lady um, that lives in the neighborhood, and, and uh, anyways, I forgot. Well, we were talking about jobs and stuff, and, and uh, at at one point, she just she she kind of stuck up her middle finger, you know, kind of like to her job, to her employer, like thanks a lot. And she stuck her finger up. And then about a minute or two later, she was wondering what kind of job I did. And Teresa said, "Well, you know, he's a pastor." And I could just I could see it in her eyes, just like, "Oh man, what did I just do?" <laughs> and uh, and then and then later on, I noticed that her speech, because her speech was kind of right, it kind of got curtailed a little bit. And I noticed a few other people. You see. People are watching you and I as Christians. They, they, if, if they know that you're a believer, they're watching you. And, and they're observing a difference. And so you and I, what a, what a beautiful opportunity you and I have to show what it means to be spiritually alive. Because they're spiritually dead. You and I, we have the Spirit alive in us. And what it can look like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit instead of being controlled by our flesh. So that's, that's the opportunities you have as, and, and I have as, as Christians. We're the pillars. God puts this little thing. Look at, look at, my, look at my person. Look at my man. Look at my, my daughter, my child, my son. And then Paul finishes the chapter with this. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now, I didn't know this until yesterday when I was studying this, uh, but apparently this is from, an, uh, many people believe that this is possibly an ancient Greek hymn that was sung to explain the, the gospel, basically, the sprint to, to sing the, or to explain the foundation of truth. Uh, they say that there's these six short Greek sentences in the original Greek, they're all in regular measure. And I had to look that up because I didn't know what that meant, but basically Luke would know what it means. Most musicians would. It, you know, the, musically, each of those sentences, they, they fit to music. You could, you could do a, you could compose a song to it. Um, I'm looking over at my son. <laughs> um, and, it's believed that somebody possibly did do that with this verse. And so Paul's just re- repeating this, this hymn, basically. And so he says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, when you think of a mystery, you think of something hidden, right? Something that, you know, you got to find out and only certain people can find it out because it's a mystery. Well, it, it sort of means that. It means something that's hidden. It's not obvious to the understanding like God's purpose and God's counsel. In the Old Covenant or under the Old Testament, you know, the gospel, it was there, but it was kind of hidden. It was kind of obscure. And so there's types and there's examples and there's pictures in the Old Testament that you can look at and and and, and you and I we go like go oh man I see Jesus in there I see I see you know I see the gospel in the Old Testament well to the Old Testament people that lived in those days for many of them it was concealed it was a mystery to them but it's been revealed through the church through you and I that mystery the mystery of godliness and so here's these six sentences that could be put to, and they, they probably think it was part of a hymn. God was manifested in the flesh. 
Now, it's interesting. That's uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. There's another third chapter, verse 16, that kind of talks about the same thing. And that's John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. God sent his Son down to become a man, to live. In, in John, uh, 1 John 3.5, it says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. I mean, it's, it's an amazing concept. It's amazing truth. It's a foundational truth that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh and was born a man and lived a sinless life on behalf of you and me. That's what that's talking about. That God was manifested in the flesh. The next sentence, so he was justified in the spirit. Now that doesn't mean that he was justified as you and I are. You know, we're sinners. And we've been justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And, and if you think of justification, you can break it down and say, just as if I never sinned. Because of Christ's sacrifice, God looks at us and we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. God looks at us and he doesn't see a sinner, he sees a saint. But that's not the justification because Jesus wasn't a sinner that needed to be justified. What it means here is that it's probably better to say that he was justified by the Spirit. And what it means is that the Spirit bore witness that Jesus was who he said he was. And that he was and always had been just before the Father in heaven. Another third chapter, verse 16, you could do an interesting study, but another third chapter, verse 16, reads this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, so there, he was justified by the Spirit. And just so we don't get too off track on chapter and verse, I've been saying chapter 3, verse 16, you know, you can go through there and you can really kind of get a little bit off base there trying to find all this stuff. It's an interesting way to study, but I wouldn't recommend it all the time. Um, but just so we don't get too far off on chapter and verse, there's another third chapter, but this time it's verse 18. And it reads this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. That's 1 Peter 3.18, by the way. And so Jesus was justified in, or rather, by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what that phrase is talking about. Seen by angels. Now, that's a very interesting one. Uh, it's a very interesting concept. It's a very interesting truth. It's not just a concept. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said this, the Godhead was seen in Christ by angels as they had never seen it before. They had beheld the attribute of justice. They had seen the attribute of power. They had marked the attribute of wisdom and seen the prerogative of sovereignty. But never had angels seen love and condescension and tenderness and pity in God as they saw these things resplendent in the person and life of Christ. Angels, they're observing Christ. They were observing Christ, and it was fascinating to them. It was even a, what Jesus Christ did on the cross was even a testimony to angels. You know, there's several times in the Gospels where angels appear with Christ to minister to him. And the Bible 
also teaches that angels are even very much interested in the affairs of God's children, of you and I as well. Because in the parable of the lost sheep, Matthew 18.10, Jesus said this, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And I could just imagine the angels, you know, uh, seeing Jesus, who, who they have saw in glory before he came down to be a man. You know, they, they, they saw him in all his power and everything, and now they see him in humility as a, as, a, as a human, as a man, suffering insults, suffering abuse, being rejected from those he actually came to save. And imagine the angels are just like, man, what is with these people? Why don't they get it, you know? I mean, that's just the picture I have. It's not thus saith the Lord. But Paul writes this also in 1 Corinthians 4.9. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So it's a very interesting concept. Jesus was seen by angels. The next sentence, preached among the Gentiles. I mean, the message of the gospel you know, what he's talking about. There's a message of the gospel. And uh, it's also why, you know, when you and I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and say, wouldn't it be interesting if we had like an altar call, you pray to accept Jesus Christ this morning, and then poof, you're raptured out of here because you accepted Christ. Now you're going to spend eternity with him. That doesn't happen, does it? We get, we get saved, we're born again, and then we live out our lives here on earth. Why? Because we're to live as a testimony to those around us. We're to share the gospel. We're to be those pillars to, for the world to see us. Uh, we're now to live and to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. So that's a very foundational thing. That's a very foundational sentence there. Believed on in the world is the next one. You know, salvation through faith in Christ is central to the gospel. There are no dead atheists. Did you know that? There's a lot of live atheists. I saw some article about all these uh, these uh, celebrities that are openly atheists. And I thought, well, that's interesting, I guess. I don't know. But you know there's no dead atheists, only living atheists? Everyone is going to be a believer after death. But the issue is only those who have believed on him in this life are going to have eternal life. Everybody is going to believe. They're, they're going to acknowledge that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no dead atheists, only live ones. But the issue is, do you believe on him now? Not just in him, but believe on him. If you put your faith on in Jesus Christ, that's why the Bible teaches today is the day of salvation. The next sentence, received up in glory. And this is a, uh, speaking of Christ's ascension. You know, Jesus died on the cross for our sin. His death was a sacrifice for your and my sin. And as we understand and as we believe from the Gospels, he rose from the dead. And so his resurrection proved that his sacrifice was accepted from the Father. His sacrifice for your and my sin was accepted, and so he resurrected from the dead. Because if it wasn't accepted, Jesus would have still been in the grave. But our, his sacrifice was accepted. But then he ascended into heaven. Why? Well, because his work on earth was done. He completed the work of salvation for us. In fact, that's why I really have a hard time when people go back to, you know, it's like you got to get saved and do, do all these things over and over again, or they talk about Christ dying on the cross over and over and over again, and, and, and it's like, no, he, he died once and for all. 
His work is complete. And so now, chapter 4, Paul writes this, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so now having talked about those pillars of our faith, the foundations of truth, now Paul is warning Timothy of a time coming when the church, and and why the church needs to be grounded in the truth. There's a time coming when the truth is going to be attacked. And Paul's not giving his own opinion, or he's like, you know, I'm seeing this trend in the church, Timothy. There's No, it's the Holy Spirit himself is revealing this, that this is going to take place. That in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now you think about that. Some are going to depart from the faith. To depart from something means you have to be there first, right? You can't, you can't depart unless you get there first, and then you have to depart. And so I think he's talking about believers or or at least those who profess to have a faith in Christ who are going to depart from the faith. How is that going to happen? Well, he says, by giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He doesn't really go in. He doesn't get very uh, specific, but he talks about the overall outcome of it. They're doctrines of demons. They're deceiving spirits. It's spiritual deception that's going to take place. And boy, I tell you, you look around and it's occurring now in our generation I mean, it occurred in Paul's generation, too. That's why most of those letters were written, because of all these false teachings that were going, these heresies that were springing up in the early church, because the enemy has always been attacking the church all down through the ages. Well, teachings of doctrines, uh, teachings or doctrines uh, from the very pit of hell, what sort of teachings are they? I, I made up a little list here. Basically, it's any teachings... First of all, that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Any of them that say anything other than Jesus was God in the flesh, that's a, that's a doctrine of demons. Any teaching that minimizes Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, that's a doctrine of demons. Or they say, you know, you need their ministry or follow their prescribed lifestyle in addition to Christ. It's Jesus and, you can fill in the blank, that's a doctrine of demons. Any uh, teachings that minimize man's need of salvation by faith alone. Again, doctrines of demons. Any teachings that minimize the consequences of sin and eternal damnation. You know, people, that they say, well, you know, uh, hell doesn't last forever. It's just, you know, just for a little while. And then God loves the world and God loves everybody. And so everybody's going to get in. And that and there's a teaching that's going around. And, and that's, that's from the pit of hell. That's a lie. That's a, that's a deception that's going to fool so many people. It's terrible. And these teachings, these doctrines of demons, 
uh, excuse me, those teaching these doctrines of demons, look what he says, they'll be speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. I don't know if you have a, a picture in your mind of something being seared with a hot iron, but you know, you, you, you burn your skin and, and uh, it hurts a lot at first, but after a while, you know, you get this scar tissue and, and you don't have any sense in it, you know, feeling anymore. And that's what he's talking about, these consciences. Now, in many cases, in my experience, money or power or, de- or a desire to have a following is, it seems to be involved with these false teachers. Either they're in it for the money or they're in it for the power or they just want to have a following. And, uh, and that's a motivation, I think, for many of them. And those false teachers, that it never ceases to amaze me how they have no problems lying and teaching false doctrines like that. Because their own consciences are seared. Their hearts are so hard and seared, there's no more sensitivity. There's no more conviction of the Holy Spirit anymore. Their hearts are dead to any conviction. And it's as true for the false teachers as well as those who follow them. They themselves, their consciences are being seared and they're no longer convicted that, hey, you're departing from the faith. Hey, this doesn't quite sound right. This doesn't really line up with Scripture. Well, eventually their consciences get seared and they, they, just, they just follow it. Hook, line, and sinker. He mentions... Uh, those who teach forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods. And we could go into what is he literally talking about. Um, But I think basically you could boil it down to describing legalism. It's basically, you know, if you follow these man-made rules, you're going to earn your salvation. You know, God's going to owe you, basically. If If you do all these right things, then you got it. It's in the bag. You've got salvation. And that's a doctrine of demons. That's That's a false teaching. Regarding food, Paul says this. He instructs Timothy, he says, "...which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." You know, that is so freeing to me. Because eating certain foods, they may affect your physical health, but they do not hinder or profit your relationship with God. Plain and simple. That's just it, okay? Maybe you're not a beef eater. Maybe you're a vegetarian. Good for you. I'm glad because that means there's more meat for me. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I love meat. I, I just, I could never be a vegetarian. But, uh, but it, it's so great to know that, you know, it doesn't matter. If you want to be a vegetarian? Cool. You, you do it. And, uh, and I'll keep eating my beef and chicken and pork and all those those good things. Um, it doesn't affect, it doesn't profit my faith. I'm no better than you, and you're no better than me if you do or don't. It doesn't matter. And Paul taught that to the church there in Corinth because they were dealing with those issues. Um, they don't, now of course certain foods might not be real good for you. We, we've experienced that, right? Um, but he says nothing is to be refused if you thank God for it and you sanctify it with the word of God, and with prayer. Now, when he's talking about food being sanctified by the word of God, he's probably referring to back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, it says, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, so it shall be uh, food for you. And then in Genesis 9.3, he says, every, this is right after the flood, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all these things, 
even as the green herbs. And so I think that's what the God's word is sanctifying all foods. And then he mentions also being sanctified by prayer. And what I think he's referring to is praying, I, I think is praying before meals. You know, I grew up in a home, we had it, we, we said a prayer before every meal. And, and uh, you know, as a kid, you know, you're hungry, you just want to get it over. You know, you're not, be honest with you, I wasn't really thinking about my prayers. Just, you know, you rattle off your prayer, you know, bless us food in Jesus' name, amen. You know, see, I could still do it. Um, and uh, some of the, my friend always had this, uh, God is great, God is good, now we thank you for our food, or something like that, you know, and it's just like, it's like rub-a-dub-dub, you know, down down the tub or whatever. Um Whatever. Uh, but, you know, that's not what God is, that's not what Paul is talking about. It's not, you know, praying, a, just rattling off a prayer. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. Uh, it's just asking God, thanking Him for it, and, and asking His blessing upon it. And, uh, you know, uh, we just did the potluck last Wednesday night, and uh, I cooked a bunch of chicken drumsticks. And,. Uh, I, I'm learning more and more that uh, you don't have to cook meat until it's completely, you know, dry and like looks like wood when it's on the grill. You can you can take it off a little bit early and it, it still kind of cooks while it's cooling down a little bit. And so, you know, I like to undercook my meat a little bit. I don't think I'm going to die from it or anything like that. Um, but I know that not everybody f- agrees with that, and a lot of people are kind of freaked out if they see any kind of color other than white or whatever the color of the meat is. Um, and so, you know, I tend to overcook food a little bit. Well, I didn't want to ruin the chicken, so I cooked it a little under. Uh, Everybody's here today. Nobody died, so I I think we're okay. But when I pray at the potlucks, and when I see some of the stuff that was brought, (laughs) we got to pray, (laughs) you know. Lord, I imagine missionaries, and you you guys probably know this, missionaries, I can just imagine. It's like, Lord, bless us food. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know what this is. It's crawling, but I'm, you know, Lord, bless us food. You know, I, I just, I just, I mean, it's an important thing to do, uh, to be thankful for our food. And so, you know, Jesus exampled it well. You know, he, he blessed food before he broke it and before he passed it out and gave it to people. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Verse 6, Paul writes, If you instruct the brethren in these things, and with all these things we've been talking about, not just this last thing, um, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith, and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. He says, if you instruct the brethren in these things. I like the original King James here. The original King James, verse 6 says, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good teacher, a good minister of Jesus Christ. To me as a pastor, that is totally freeing, totally encouraging. Uh, I personally really admire men like Chuck Missler. Anybody know who Chuck is? I know a few guys know who Chuck Missler is. I, I really admire men like Chuck Missler who can dig into the scriptures and they pull out the most fascinating nuggets of information, of truths that are in there. But you know, if I had to do that all the time, if I always had to dig in and find something new that nobody's heard before, something that's just going to blow their socks off when they hear it and everything, I would burn out in a hurry. Because I'm not that smart. I can't find things like that. Um, But the good thing is, the freeing thing is, I'm not called to teach some previously unknown fact every Sunday and Wednesday. You guys would have left a long time ago if that was my job to do. You know what I'm responsible to? Is to remind you of the truths of Scripture. Just to remind you. And for me, it's like, thank you, Lord. I don't have to be that smart. I I can just read your word and we can go from there.
But you know, instruction is not just teaching. It's also living an example. You think about the disciples. You know, Jesus taught a lot, but they spent 24-7 with him for three years. And I don't think Jesus talked the whole time. I think, you know, they just watched him. Like, how is he going to interact with this? And so they watched and observed Jesus Christ. And they learned by just spending time with him. In fact, that was one of the things that the Sanhedrin said. Man, these guys are talking amazingly. And, and we know they're just fishermen. They're not educated. And they go, ah, they must have spent time with Jesus. Nah, that's my goal, man. Just spending time with Jesus so that people go, yeah, you must have spent time with him. But that's what they did. They, they learned by not only being hearing, hearing Jesus teach, but just watching him, observing him in daily life. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to encourage Timothy. And so Paul reminds Timothy to be nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen TV commercials about malnourished children or malnourished. You know, like they, now they've got these, they, I don't like those commercials, but they've got the commercials where you can adopt a malnourished kitten or a puppy, you know. I mean, I, I don't like being cruel to animals, but it's like now there's this, there's this move that, that animals seem to be even more important than humans and babies. And anyways, the, you know those pictures, the malnourished. Uh, they're either malnourished because they're starving or they're just not eating healthily. Well, Paul here is reminding Timothy to be nourished. So that's the opposite of malnourished. And so being nourished means, first of all, you're eating, right? You're reading God's word. But you're also feeding on healthy food. You're not just reading a bunch of junk. You're, you're in the Word itself. And you're growing in that. And so Timothy, as a pastor, needed to be in the Word himself. And that's a, that's a constant challenge to me. I, I need to be in the Word myself as a pastor. But we all need to be in the Word. And Timothy needed to follow carefully follow the good doctrine, other the teachings of truth based on Scripture. His life needed to match up with what he taught and what he said. And, you know, that's always my challenge. It's always my goal. I, need, I, need, I want to walk the talk. I don't want to just talk the walk. You know. Verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily, uh, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Reject profane and old wives' fables. What is that? What is he talking about? He's basically talking about teachings of men, not scriptures. The Talmud was a perfect example of this. The Talmud was basically rabbinic teachings of men based on Old Testament scripture. And if you read some of the stuff in the Talmud, there's some really some, there's some bizarre stuff in there. Because it's man's teachings. It's not God's word. And so I think this is what Paul is alluding to. He might be alluding to other things, but that certainly is probably one of them. You know, when I think of old wives' fables, we would call them old wives' tales. Or I think it's the same thing. Uh, you know, it's basically stuff that purports to be valuable, but in really reality it does nothing. Uh, remember the National Enquirer? They had all kinds of stuff that seemed to be really important, but it turned out to be nothing, right? Um, when I was growing up, and bless, I love my mom, but when I was growing up, my mom used to tell me, if you lie on your back, you're going to have nightmares. And so I was deathly, deathly afraid of lying on my back. 
as soon as, you know, I'm, I, you know, sometimes that's the most comfortable place to lay. And you lay on your back and it's like, oh, I don't want to get a nightmare. <laughs> Flip over onto my side. That's an old wives' tale, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it isn't. <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems to be important, but reality, it, it doesn't matter if you lay on your back or on your side. It probably depends on what you eat. <laughs> that's probably more of, a, more, depending on, more of a factor on if you have nightmares or not. So instead of uh, uh, old profane and old wives' tales, he says, instead, exercise yourself toward godliness. And if you've read any of Paul's letters, he talks a lot about physical activity, sports. He, he probably, if he was alive today, he'd probably, be, he'd probably have ESPN on his TV. I mean, he was a sports guy. Um, and he always talked about sports or physical, athletic type of, of competitions. And Paul's illustration here of exercising yourself towards godliness is an illustration of an athlete physically training for a competition. And the fascinating thing was in those days, they competed for a crown that would perish. They'd get this little olive leaf-like thing that would, you know, in a couple of days it'd be wilted and pretty soon it'd be turned to mulch, you know. Um, and, and so, but Paul is talking about, that's the, that's the example that Paul is using. Physical training. Exercise yourself towards godliness. Physically train towards godliness. What does that mean? Well, you look at physical, physical uh, training. Usually it involves rigorous exercise, right? It involves pushing yourself further than your body wants to go. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you're going to be competing for the for a, a long distance run, you want to run probably twice as long as you're going to run in your actual competition because you want to get strong, you want to build up that endurance and stuff. And man, you're in there running and stuff, and you're put your that acid, you know, starts burning in your muscles, and you want to stop. And it's like, no, I got to push myself. I got to force. That's what he's talking about: exercising yourself towards godliness. Not only that, but athletes, and that's one thing I never do, but Teresa always is on my case when we used to go walking and stuff. She's like, you need to stretch before you walk, you know? And so we do all these little goofy stretching exercises. I just want to go and do stuff, but usually end up getting hurt. But, you know, stretching, basically, you know, you, if, you, know you can only bend over so far, but after you stretch and stuff, you realize, man, I can actually go a little further. We're to be doing that as Christians in our, in our faith. We're to be stretching ourselves. You know what? I think I'm going to trust God just a little bit more for this area of my life. Instead of just kind of falling back to the same old, I'm going to, I'm going to just trust him a little bit more. I'm going, to, I'm going to step out in faith in this thing here. That's stretching yourself. That's what we're to be doing as, as Christian athletes. And another thing is proper diet. Man, what are you, what are you feeding yourself you know what, what? What kind of? What are you watching? What are you? What are you listening to? What are you reading and stuff? You, you know, I'll be honest with you. I like watching television shows once in a while, and you know, I like reading a, a non-Christian book once in a while. I like doing things like that. But if you're constantly feeding on those things, if that's your diet, you're not going to. You're not going to be in competition as a Christian. You're not. You're not going to be. You're. You're not going to be in com- competitive. You're not going to be competitive. I should say. And so proper diet, right? And what's that? That's the Word of God. And then denying yourself unproductive, unhealthy activities. You know, before a competition, certain athletes are like, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I love that, but I'm not going to do that because I'm in training right now for my whatever my sport is. I'm in training for that. And for you and I as Christians, we look at things that, you know, the world goes, hey, this is, there's nothing wrong with this or that. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I like that. But you know what? I'm aiming for heaven, 
I'm aiming for godliness. And yeah, that, that may not be a bad thing in and of itself, but you know what? It's not productive for me because I'm trying to train myself as a Christian. So exercising yourself towards godliness. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9.25, And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Timothy, exercise yourself in godliness because you have, a perish- or you have an imperishable crown. There's a crown waiting for you. And for each one of us, as servants of Jesus Christ, there are crowns waiting for us in glory. And so we want to be aiming towards that and striving for that. Verse 10, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Um, You know, as a good minister of the gospel... Timothy needed to understand that it was work. It wasn't easy. It was labor. In fact, Timothy, as we when we first got into the book here, you know, Timothy had a weak stomach. He was being he had issues with people, you know, not respecting him for his age. It was tough in ministry there in Ephesus. And Paul, this letter basically is just to encourage Timothy. Hey, Timothy, you can do it. In fact, later on he'll say, Don't let anyone despise your youth. You know, he's just trying to encourage Timothy. Why? Because Timothy was having a tough time. The beginning of, I think it's chapter 1 or chapter 2, he says, I write this so that you'll remain in Ephesus. And I can totally picture Timothy. It's like, you know what? This ministry is getting too tough. I'm out of here, man. There's been a few times when I've said, you know what? Being a pastor, I just it's not worth it. I'd rather just go back and do whatever I did before and... So sometimes I have to remind myself, no, there, there, there is a, there's a purpose. There's, it's, there's all these people that I love. <laughs> I couldn't leave you guys. Um, but uh, so Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, Timothy, it is labor. And you probably very well might suffer reproach. But as a good minister of the gospel, do it anyways. And that's, that's what Paul is reminding Timothy. Why? Because we trust in the living God. God's alive. He is active in your and my life. You know, uh, I was talking to someone not too long ago, and we were just talking about how, you know, some people, you know, they just see God's blessings all the time, and they're always sharing about how God's blessed them in this area and that area and stuff. And, you know, we were talking about things other people don't either experience or what. And what we boiled down to is like, it's those people are looking for those things. They're looking for God's action because God is active in each one of our lives. Sometimes things happen, you go, oh, that was a coincidence. Well, no, nothing's a coincidence. God cares about even the most minutest thing in your life. He cares about it. We talked about it on a Wednesday night. You know, God counts, God knows the, the number of hairs on your head. And you might comb your hair this, maybe you combed your hair this morning. Most of you did, it looks like. Uh, you combed your hair this morning, and you maybe lost a, a follicle or two or five or ten or twenty. <laughs> did, you lo- did you keep track? Let's see, that's... Uh, 139,000 hairs I got left on my head. No, we don't keep track of that, right? But the Bible says God knows how many hairs are on your head. He's like, okay, there's five gone now. You've only got four left. You know, no, just, <laughs> but God is He's active in our lives. He's aware of what you and I are going through. Now, that is a comfort in and of itself. You might think, you know, I don't, man, why is this happening? God's aware of it. 
And because God's aware of it, he's involved and he's also in control. And so just, you know, when you think about it, we trust in a living God. I hope that encourages you this morning. Who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, basically, I think what Paul is basically saying is, you know, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He didn't just die for a certain group of people. He died for the entire world. But it's only those who put their trust in him that he's really their Savior because they've accepted him and they will have eternal life. So we're going to stop there uh, this morning. Next week we'll pick it up at verse 12 and we'll go into chapter 5 next week. But uh, I hope you're encouraged this morning. Um, I know for me it was just a kind of a challenge, you know. I want to exercise towards godliness and uh, I want to feed myself the good stuff and hopefully you're doing that as well too. Why don't you stand up and let's go Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Uh, for this morning, Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, I, I thank you for each and every person here. Lord, we are all striving, Father, to, to glorify you. Lord, we want our lives uh, to be, uh, to count for something. And Lord, we want to be examples uh, to this world of what it means to be uh, alive, spiritually alive, and to be led by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would lead us. I pray, Father, that we would just submit ourselves to your leading. And that, Lord, we might just see you work through us, Father. And so I thank you for those reminders this morning. I pray your blessing upon your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.